As I look out at the snow and cold, and I think about the series called Prodigal Family, uh, bringing practical help to our families, uh, I, I'm focused upon this story Jesus told about a father and two sons. And one day the younger son says to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. Meaning his inheritance, which because he was the younger son would have been one third of everything the father owned. In those days, this was incredibly disrespectful to the father to ask for this inheritance. This was like saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. But the father surprises everyone by dividing up his property between the two sons. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and traveled to a distant country where he wasted everything that had been given to him. And then a famine comes and he begins to work for a pig farmer and he ends up hungry eating corn cobs from the pig slop. In this desperate situation, he decides to return to his father, having learned an important lesson. And when he returns, he will confess his sin against God and against his father and ask for forgiveness and ask to be hired as a hired hand, never to be called a son again. So the son returns to his father, and when he's still a long ways off, his father sees him, and his father runs to hug and kiss him. And the son begins his speech, but the father's not listening. Father says there will be a celebration, a party, a feast. Get a heifer and roast it, barbecued beef. A son who was lost is now found. All this time, the older brother was out in the field. When the day's work was done, he came in. And as he approached the house, he heard the music and dancing. Calling one of the servants, he asked, what's going on? And the servant told him, your brother came home. Your father ordered a feast and a party. The older brother stalked off angry and refused to join the party. His father came out and tried to talk to this son, but the oldest son disrespected his father by not listening or going to the party. The son said, look, for many years I've stayed here serving you, never giving you one moment of grief. But have you ever thrown a party for me and my friends? This son of yours has squandered your money on immoral living and you go all out with a feast for him. The father said, Son, you don't understand. Everything that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate. Your brother was lost and now he's found. The story ends with the father celebrating with the younger son at the party and estranged from his older brother. So what does this word prodigal, prodigal family mean? One thing it means is reckless, doing something without thinking about the consequences. And this story has always been called the parable of the prodigal son because the younger son's behavior was seen as reckless. But we want to remind you the father, father figure is also reckless, loving his son, reckless with his love, reckless with his grace, reckless with his forgiveness, reckless with giving up his own rights. So the question is this, how might you and I be a little more reckless in our families like this father was in his? Great video. We've been watching that for a number of weeks. <clears throat> Fantastic job of teaching in the video. Um, I'm just glad that it's done because there's been snow on the ground ever since they recorded that video. And I'm holding Dave and Johnny responsible for that fact. Uh, before I get started, I just want to say, you know, we have a couple of uh, uh, members of the Cedar Falls High School basketball team who attend uh, church here. Congratulations to them on back-to-back -back state titles. That was fantastic. And I know we got some Panther fans in the house too, right, Jewel Cooper? 
playing for all the marbles today in the conference, so we're looking forward to that. Well, as I said, we've been in this series now for, I think, six weeks. We originally scheduled to move on to a new series today, but because we missed a couple days, we extended this series so we could finish it out because uh, we've just heard a lot of positive response from people. We know that this is uh, an important felt need in our church body. And um, if you're like me, some of you before Dave's video, when you heard, uh, you know, this story that's become known as the prodigal son, you may have thought, well, prodigal means lost, it means reckless, so why would we call a series the prodigal family, like the lost family or the reckless family? And Dave does a great job of reminding us that prodigal actually means to be wastefully or recklessly extravagant. To be, in other words, to, to spend until you have nothing left, to be lavishly abundant. And so we've been talking about how this is more than a story about a son who goes out and recklessly wastes his father's inheritance, but it's actually about this father who recklessly spends everything he has in order to restore this son who was lost and to restore the brokenness that he experienced in his family. And we've been asking, what might it look like for us to be prodigal families who live this same way, who, who commit to loving our family members and other important people in our lives in the way that this father loves his son with that same reckless abandon, that reckless love? What does it look like to love people like our father in heaven loves us? And what does it look like for us to live this way? Today we're going to focus specifically on two things. One is that God celebrates humble steps forward. Every humble step we take towards him, God is ready to celebrate that. And the second thing is that when we take humble steps towards God, we discover that God is actually already running towards us with his reckless and lavish love for us. And therefore, we ought to do the same for our friends and for our family. We ought to celebrate their humble steps, and we ought to run towards them with that same selfless kind of love. So what does this require? When I was 18 years old, I, uh, I lost my license. I don't mean like I misplaced it. Uh, I wish that's what I meant. But I got picked up for speeding and reckless driving. Uh, the undercover detective who was on his way home pulled me over, said I was doing 90 miles per hour. Uh, you got to know that there was no way that my 1976 <laughs> poop brown, three on the tree, Chevy Nova could do 90 miles per hour. I mean, that thing shook violently every time you got it up to about 60, 65 miles per hour. So I think this is probably what the detective was driving uh, when he was trying to catch me from a mile behind. But anyway, I get a couple really expensive tickets for reckless driving and speeding. It cost me like 300 bucks. I know I'm going to have, I lose my license on the spot. I'm going to have to file for expensive insurance. Humiliating experience. You can imagine how anxious I was to go home and tell my dad the good news. <laughs> These were some humble steps back to my father. And uh, I remember his first, the first thing he did. He actually called and made an appointment with his attorney. And the next thing he did was he went to that appointment with me. And this was my dad's way of, of behaving like the father in the story and, and communicating to me, Jeff, you are my son, you will always be my son, and I love you. But I, 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 through this experience, I kind of got an idea of what it was like for this son in this story, 
right, to, to take his father's inheritance and recklessly spend it all and drive his life into the ditch and have to walk humbly home and ask for mercy from his dad. But it was actually even worse for this son than it was for me. Because the minute that people in, in that culture, uh, the, that the family members or, or the people in the, in the community would have seen this son walking home, they had every right to go out and stone him. In fact, in their culture, that's what was expected. Because of the amount of shame that he'd brought upon his father, people were expected to go out and throw rocks at him if they saw him enter the community again. And yet this young son's humble steps home are met instead by a father who is running to him to celebrate his return. Let's, uh, let's actually listen again to actually how Jesus tells the story in his, in his own words. He says it this way. He says, when he came to his senses, the son said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. This is a party. Right, this is a celebration. It's like this, this older brother comes in, and, and before he even gets to the house from a long ways away, he hears the music thumping, the bass is kicking. Right? It's like he can probably hear them singing in there, like, tonight we're going to party like it's 0099. Prince of Egypt, long before the artist formerly known as Prince came up with that lyric. And the father, his reaction is, is when he first sees the son from a long ways off, he runs to greet him with this unabashed mercy and kindness and love and celebration. And you know, fathers didn't run in those days. It was considered dishonoring because they'd have to pull up their robes and expose their bare legs and nobody wanted to see that. It brought shame upon the father. And before the son could even get a single word out, he's throwing himself at his son. He's hugging him and he's kissing him. And, and before he can process a single word of confession or apology that the son is trying to offer, he says, bring the best robe in the house, which would have been whose robe? It would have been the father's very own robe. And this, this is a way of the father to communicate, listen, it's cool. Welcome back. Everything I have is yours. You are restored to this family. And then he says, go out and kill the fattest calf. In other words, we're having guests for dinner. We're going to have a party and we're going to celebrate. And this son, where older brother comes in from the field. And before he gets there, not only does he hear the music, but he hears the dancing. They must have been clogging or something. I don't know, but he can hear them stomping around in the house. This is a rager. This is an incredible response. In fact, we might even think it's over the top. And it was even more surprising to the original audience who was listening to Jesus tell this story that day. Because they heard that story a little bit differently than we do. 
See, we hear the story and we think that it's about this son who has come to his senses and he's, he's full of confession and repentance and a contrite heart. And, and because of that, the father sees him and, and, and he gives him his favor back. You know, after all, the son confesses. He says, I'll be a hired hand. And all of that's really good. But the original audience would have heard it a little bit differently, especially when they heard the son talk about becoming a hired hand rather than just becoming one of the father's servants. Because in that day, servants actually were a part of the family. They, they came and they, they lived on the property. They ate with the family. They worked with the family. But a hired hand was not part of the family. They would come to the property and they would work during the day and they would earn a wage and then they would go home and they would live a separate life from the family. Jesus' audience keyed in on this. The son asks to be a hired hand. In other words, he's saying, I know that my father has some resources and if I can go back and work for my father and earn enough money, maybe I can buy my way back into the family. And that's a little bit different than repentance that might say, Father, forgive me. I know that I, that I broke your heart. I know that I broke our relationship. I know that I can do nothing to repair either one. Will you, will you forgive me? Will you have mercy on me? The son takes humble steps back to his father, but he's still quite lost. See, we think it's a story about the son has repented and he's made his life right, and that triggers this emotional response. But the truth is, before he repents, the father is already running to him with his reckless love. The truth is that it's his steps towards his father that leads him to discover the father's compassion that makes repentance and restoration even possible. He sees his son from a long ways off and immediately takes off running to him with compassion and grace. Are our homes... And our relationships characterized by this same reckless love and mercy? In relationships that may be strained or broken, are we running to celebrate humble steps forward, even when we know that person may still be a long ways off? Maybe they're still lost. Maybe there's been very little real change of heart. Or do we let our anger and our resentment and our fear keep us from running to them with celebration. So that's what happened to the older brother in the story. He hears the music, the dancing, and uh, he could probably smell the steaks on the grill. And the servants come out and they tell him that his dad's throwing this big party because his brother has come home. And uh, listen to how Jesus says in his words again how this older brother reacts says, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. He refuses to take any humble steps towards his family. In fact, he causes a scene outside of the house, bringing further embarrassment on this father. This father 
has to leave the party that he's throwing. He's invited guests to this party, and he goes out and brings further shame upon himself, and he begs and pleads for his oldest son to come in and join the party. And the real irony in all of this is that in the crowd that day, listening as Jesus tells the story, are some of the best of the best Jews who were just like this older brother. They did everything that God required of them. They knew right from wrong. They were obedient. They were disciplined. And they also knew something else. They knew that there was something missing in this story. See, this is the third of three stories that Jesus is telling to the crowd that day. And in each of those stories, Jesus is telling about something that was lost and then was found. But in the first two stories, a man loses a sheep and another person loses a coin. Somebody, the the owner of, of those objects goes out and looks desperately for what was lost. So the person who loses the sheep leaves the 99 behind, a little reckless to go find the one lost sheep. And the owner of the coin tears the house apart looking for this coin until it's found. And then when both objects are found, they throw this big party. So in this third story about the lost son, Jesus' audience is fully expecting someone to go out and look for this lost son and bring him home and let the party begin. But in this third story, no one goes to look for the lost son. In a Jesus culture, everyone knew whose responsibility that was. It was the responsibility of the older brother. Like the religious elite in the crowd that day, this older brother is so focused on right and wrong. And he's so bitter and resentful that his father is lavishing this grace on this son who who was so reckless and so screwed up. It's grace that should have been reserved for him because he had done everything right to this point. Should have been his reward. And he's so bitter and full of resentment that he refuses to go in and celebrate. And it also kept him from going out to bring his younger brother home. And as the crowd listens to this story, I imagine they were shocked. Some of them may be angry or confused. And some of them may have been wondering, why didn't he go? Or if if they were lost in the crowd, I wonder if anybody would come for me. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, and he's saying to the crowd, and he's saying to us, don't miss what this story's about. I have come as the big brother. I have come to welcome the lost home and to restore them to their rightful place in my father's family. To all you who are lost, I am running to you because my father longs to have a relationship with you. And to you bigger brothers, I'm inviting you, come and celebrate this with us. Join the party and then let's go out and do this again together. So again, we ask, who are you more like in your home or in your family or in the church Does your anger and your fear and your self-righteousness keep you from taking steps towards the brokenness you see in your families or in other relationships in the world? Or is there a sense of being offended that keeps us from watching for and celebrating the humble steps people are taking? Or maybe our homes are characterized by a sense of this reckless love and this mercy displayed by the Father. We take extravagant steps, just like Jesus, just like this 
this father towards the strained and broken relationships around us? Do we celebrate humble steps forward even when we know our friends and families may be a long ways off? Or maybe they're just wrong and we're right. But do we try to make a place for them to belong? I have some video of uh, my oldest son, Lewis. And uh, it was taken 22 years ago. He turned 23 last Saturday. And these are some of his very first steps that he was taking. If you can call them first steps, he's kind of more just falling forward or backwards. And he's a long ways off from becoming a real stable walker or from becoming the kind of athlete he would later become. And uh, yet we are celebrating every bit of this. And, and you can tell just how important this moment is because we got the video camera out, right? And we're trying to catch these important moments. And here's the deal. Here's why moments like this are so important. You can hear my voice will change. It like goes up a few octaves because I'm so proud and excited, right, as I'm cheering him on. This is why it's so important. Research shows, study after study explains that celebrations like this over little small steps, help our children form really strong attachments with their family, to gain the sense that they belong, that they're, that they're one of the family. And children who aren't celebrated in this way, who don't form these attachments, they have a real hard time. They lack the capacity later in life to form intimate relationships with God and with others. I mean, what says you belong more than like celebrations like this, right? What says you're one of us more than when we get together and we celebrate something small as a person just takes a step forward into something? I think we never outgrow this. It still means a lot to me when somebody celebrates something small that I did. I may be a long ways to go, you know, but, but if they celebrate it, it just gives me encouragement to keep going. One of my friends, with his, he tells me about his wife and these breakthroughs that they're having. And sometimes I go, boy, that's a really small step. But it's like, yes, that's a really small step, and that's huge. Celebrate that. And nothing will ever cause me to not desire and to be encouraged by the knowledge that God celebrates every step forward that I take, no matter how small it might be. So if we want our children to thrive, if we want our friendships to thrive, we want our children to have strong relationships with God and others as well. We have to be about creating times of celebration. We have to be people who understand that those we love might be a long ways off, but they're taking a step forward, and that's worthy of celebration. And this may sound obvious and it may sound easy, but this can be really hard. One of the things that really gets in the way is this battle over who's right and who's wrong. Or what's the right thing and what's the wrong thing? And that can keep us from celebrating. But we need to create places where creating a place to belong trumps the battle of a right and wrong. So Lewis grew up, as I said, he's, this was 22 years ago, he's 23 now, but when he was a sophomore in high school, uh, he left the house one night and didn't come back. Uh, we had an argument. He was not being respectful of uh, my wife or me or the rules in our house. And uh, we were just kind of at a loss. I know I was scared at uh, some of the decisions he was making, the choices he was making, and, and the consequences that those choices could have, and thinking that it might ruin his future or his, or his life. And that fear overpowered me. And I knew that I was right, and Lewis was wrong, and it came to a head. 
And he went to a friend's house, and this dad uh, of this friend was a good friend of ours, and he called immediately and said, hey, Lewis can stay here as long as he needs, and I'll, I'll work really hard to make sure that he can uh, come home and make things right with you guys as soon as possible. And he was gracious and really helpful to us, but Lewis didn't come home that night, and he didn't come home the next night, and he didn't come home the night after that, and I think he was gone for at least a week. You know what I was thinking about the whole time he was gone? I was thinking about this story. And I was thinking about this father in this story. And I could get a sense of this father's pain. And I was wondering, how did this father let his son go and yet never turned his back on him? And did this father have any regrets about his actions? I kept thinking, Lewis is just a sophomore. I can't just let him go. He's, we're still responsible for him. He's, he's still you know, under our authority. I and mean, if he was a little bit older and going off to college, maybe we could just let him go. But that wasn't the case. So how was I supposed to respond to Lewis in this moment? So I started to write a letter to Lewis. And as I wrote this letter, God began to speak to me. And he began to tell me that this was more about me and my relationship with God than it was about what my son was doing or how he was behaving. See if you can pick up on some of that as I share a little bit of this letter Start off, dear Lewis, I'm sorry about the other night. What you heard was an unfortunate explosion of fear corrupting love. If you hear nothing else in this letter, please hear this. I love you. I will always love you. No matter how angry you get with me or how mad I get at you, no matter how bad you screw up or I do, no matter what you do, I will love you. More importantly, and something I forget all too often, much more important, God loves you even more than I do. He knows the plans he has for you, and they are good, not for your harm. I think I forget that because it's hard to believe God could love you more than I do, but it's true, and he does a much better job of accepting you right where you are right now. When I let fear get the best of me, bad things happen. There are a lot of reasons for my fear, and you probably don't care about them, but I want to let you know anyway so that maybe you can better understand them someday. And I went on to explain some of these fears, fears that some of the uh, uh, dysfunctional patterns I saw in my family growing up were being repeated in our family, or some of the decisions that my sister made that caused her undue suffering, Lewis was making some of those same decisions, and I didn't want him to have to experience that unnecessary suffering himself. I was afraid of what other people might think of Cindy and me as parents or as a leader of a church when they would hear stories about some of the decisions Lewis was making. I was scared because I felt helpless. And I had to acknowledge that I didn't know the plans or the path that God had for my son, and they probably weren't the same plans or path that I had in mind. So I would have to surrender mine to God, and I would have to trust that God would be faithful to his plans, and that they just might be better than mine. And that meant that I'd need to pray more, and I'd need to worry less, and I'd need to love more and fear less. And it didn't mean we stopped parenting. It didn't mean that there weren't consequences for actions and decisions. But I had to take some humble steps towards God. The first thing I had to do was, I, as you see in the letter, I just had to confess. I had to acknowledge that I was living more like the older brother than I was like the father in the story. I was allowing anger and fear to control my responses rather than living by love. 
And that was uh, causing me to allow right and wrong to trump creating a place for Lewis and his friends to just come home and, and belong. And by taking the time to write this letter, I, I began to understand these fears and I could actually name them and begin to surrender them and ask God to help me fight against them. Second, I had to accept God's invitation to renew my commitment to trust him, to, to walk with Jesus, to, to radically, selflessly extend mercy and grace and love to my son, even in the midst of these hard things that he was experiencing, some of the, the decisions he was making to walk away. I had to trust that God is good, that God sees things, he has a bigger vision than me, and that he could help Lewis through this. And if we hadn't had other good friends who were a little further down the road come alongside us and encourage us in these moments, some of them here this morning in the front row, I don't know if I would have been able to have the courage to trust God the way that I needed to in these moments. He saw us from a long ways off, and he sent some friends to help us through this time. And finally, I had to commit to like celebrate small steps because when things are blowing up and things aren't going well, you have to look really, really hard for these small steps to celebrate. And you have to be prepared for how you're going to handle in advance the, the bad decisions that are made. You have to expect some bad choices and bad decisions and know what you're going to do to respond so it doesn't take control and create fear in your life. And it can free you up to look for the positive work that God is doing in your children's lives. And you can celebrate that even in the midst of all the other garbage that might be going on. I closed my letter this way. I said, uh, we are always here for you, always cheering for you, always supporting you, always wanting the best for you and praying that we can be patient as God is patient and gracious and merciful and forgiving. We love you, Lewis. Please don't ever forget that. You know, sometimes we get to run to our children and we get to throw our arms around them and we get to hug them and we get to kiss them or we get to throw parties for them or we maybe get to smoke a celebratory cigar after they finish their football career. I'm not saying that happened, not condoning that, but sometimes that may be something somebody does. And other times we're sitting on the porch, patiently waiting for our children to come home or reasoning with them after they've made decisions to walk away or listening to them. The one thing I know is it's our job, not someone else's, to trust God and to walk with God, to take humble steps towards the brokenness and to celebrate every humble step forward. Will you pray with me? Father, we are always in need of your love. We never outgrow this. And Father, our relationship with you based on this love is the foundation for us to have the power necessary to be able to create environments where we are able to celebrate small steps forward in the midst of really hard things, to be able to live by love instead of fear when things are falling apart. Father, we open ourselves up this morning and we ask that you would again be with us and draw near to us and strengthen us so that we can receive the love that you have for us. We can know as we take a step towards you this morning that you are celebrating that step and that you're going to encourage us and empower us to run with that same love to others around us who are in desperate need of it. 
who are in desperate need of restoration or encouragement to help find their way home. It's in your name we pray.